Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. We are going to be looking at Matthew 21, 23 through 32. And if you note, that's quite a skip from where we were last week. I'm not sure why the Revised Common Lectionary did that, but maybe Alan can give us some insight and, and some preparation for this. I think I've given up trying to read the minds of the people who put together the Revised Common Lectionary. But we are in a new section of Matthew's Gospel, and um, we're in the section where Jesus confronts the Jewish religious authorities on their own territory in the, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, we should note that despite the traditional idea that Jesus' ministry was about three years, and, and that traditional idea is based on the fact that John's Gospel mentions several trips uh, on the Jesus part to Jerusalem, the synoptic tradition only knows of one visit to Jerusalem on Jesus' part, and that's the one that led to his death, and, and that's it. So, you know, in terms of the way the Synoptic Gospels are, are, are structured, you know, this is, this is kind of, we're, we're reaching a, a, uh, a critical point in the conflict. And um, so um, this is significant. You know, we're in, we're in we're, you know, Jesus is taking the conflict to, 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 to the temple. And, um, you know, whereas before the conflict has come to him, there have been Pharisees or scribes, who were uh, present for his his ministry uh, events in Galilee? So, with the yeah. with with the exception of some unique events, then Matthew is just is basically following a structure that's shared with Mark, Mark and Luke. You know, it I, I makes sense in with the synoptic tradition why it's a year. So, um, well, I mean, if you look at the if you look at the I mean, if you look at the the level of conflict in Jeru- in in the Galilean ministry already, you know, they're already plotting to kill him in Galilee. And True. you know, he he goes to Jerusalem. I mean, it's kind of inevitable that he if he goes to Jerusalem, he's he, that's going to be he's going to meet his end. Right, right. Yeah. So, what is our context for today? Well, in the context for today, we need to we need to remember that that this is Matthew twenty one, where Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly. You know, we're in we're in Matthew's passion narrative here, and Jesus right. has entered Jerusalem triumphantly. He's cleansed the temple, which, you know, now he's back teaching in the temple. That's pretty gutsy on his part, and now he's returned there to challenge the Jewish religious leaders, who are who are identified here as the chief priest and the elders of the people. So That's this a is huge jump from where we were, really. I yes, mean, in terms of kind of preparing our. Our congregations, I think we have to definitely put this context in there if they're if we're going along with the with the gospel reading every week. Yeah, I think that would be wise. I think that would be wise. Um, but in 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 Matthew's gospel and the synoptic tradition, this is Jesus' first encounter with the temple hierarchy. We've seen he's had conflicts with Pharisees and the scribes, but they were more based in the synagogues. This is his first encounter with the temple hierarchy. And basically, besides the, the infancy narrative in Matthew's gospel and their presence at the triumphal entry, the only reference to the chief priests and elders prior to this in Matthew's gospel is found in Jesus' passion predictions, where he predicts that, you know, 
the chief priest and the elders are going to, yeah. you know, uh, arrest him and, 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 and have him killed. So then beginning with our lesson for today, uh, what we find in this section of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus faces several challenges from them. And each time they seem to think they have him, you know, caught on the horns of a dilemma, but he turns each one of them back onto them and, and turns the dilemma back onto them. So how does our, our, our um, pericope today start? Well, it opens with the main challenge from the Jewish leaders, and this is really kind of the fundamental question. By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority, in verse 23? Now, I think there's some irony in this question, especially for someone who's either hearing or reading Matthew's gospel. Matthew introduced his gospel right? Verse Matthew 1, 1, by naming Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. So anybody who's hearing Matthew's gospel or reading Matthew's gospel has this understanding that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but the son of David, that he's fully authorized. Furthermore, Jesus has been endorsed by a voice from heaven, and the distinction between from heaven and of human origin is going to come up later, but Jesus has been endorsed by a voice from heaven not once but twice at the baptism and um, at the transfiguration. And in fact, at the transfiguration, the voice instructs the disciples to listen to him. <laughs> right. and, and both of these events are triple tradition in the synoptic gospel, in the synoptic right. tradition. They're, they're in all three gospels. Mm -hmm. Um, Jesus' authority, or exousia, has not only been recognized by the crowds at the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew tells us that the crowds recognized that he taught as one having authority, not like their scribes, but also demonstrated by Jesus in his mighty works. He demonstrates by healing the paralyzed man that he had authority to forgive sins, and the crowd marveled that such authority had been given to, to mortals. And as we've observed a number of times, of course, at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, Jesus will declare that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Matthew has thoroughly dealt with the question of authority. And so it, to me, I think there's a little bit of an irony for the, the, the leaders in, in Jerusalem to ask, you know, um, by what authority are you doing these things? <laughs> and, and so um, it, it really sets up the clash really, between himself and the kingdom of God he proclaimed and the Jewish religious leaders and the religious and political kingdom that they guarded. You know, it makes it clear now that you're walking through this. Um, it, is there something about Matthew's audience that they they needed to have this reinforced? I mean, I'm trying to, or is it just... Well, we'll, we'll get to that, but I it may have to do with the conflict with the synagogue between... Between Matthew's community and, and the synagogue, yeah. So, how does Jesus um, respond? Well, Did Jesus you... doesn't really answer their question. He asks them a counter question. He says, yeah. I will also ask you one question. If you tell me, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Now, the fact that Jesus uses a counter question contributes to the sense of the growing conflict between him and the Jewish religious leaders. And I find it interesting that in response to their question about his authority, Jesus asked them essentially about the authority of John the Baptist. And of course, here, asking about where Baptist, John's baptism came from is essentially asking about 
John's ministry as a whole. It's, you know, was John authorized to do the things he did? And if so, by whom? <laughs> you know, he, he, right. he, he kind of turns, turns the question in a different direction. Now, we've seen that John plays an important role in Matthew's understanding of the kingdom of God, so that Matthew likes to portray Jesus' ministry as fulfilling what John began, and that's one of my main challenges with Matthew. But uh, Jesus' question to the leaders here is not a unique feature of the first gospel. Matthew's following the synoptic tradition, so all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have this same dialogue, and, and, and so this, is, this isn't something unique to Matthew. Boring, Gene Boring in his commentary in the New Interpreter's Bible suggests that by asking about John, Jesus evokes the picture of the stream of prophets through Israel's history, the authentic bearers of God's word, who nevertheless were rejected and killed by the people's leaders. I think that's, that's, a, I think that's an astute observation. I think so, too. Because I find it, well, when, you, when, you, when I find it, when I jump into it, it I, I think it, it's one of those things that when you have mentally harmonized the Gospels, and then you read this, and you've decided John is done, and Matthew and, and Jesus is after John. And then this is coming kind of back to John here is, is troublesome, right? Well, um, it's just, you know, I, I, I think, um, well, I think we're going to see Matthew has some, has some specific reasons for doing this. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, 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 I find it interesting that, that, that you know, Jesus... Um, uh, you know, I think Jesus knew they were trying to trap him, and so you know he's he's kind of calling their bluff, as it were. <laughs> I think. Right, right. I I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think it's I, I, you're right. I think it's important for what Matthew is 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 constructing for us. But I think for us today, um, when you read Matthew and him, John comes back in, and you've mentally thought John is past. He's gone. His his ministry's over. It gives you a different, it gives you a different lens to see that, if you will. Um, I think. Well, I think it 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 it, sh- it sheds light on on the Jew- the temple authorities here and what they're really after. You know, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because and also Gene Boring points out that while John and Jesus were sent by God from heaven, and, and Jesus has already challenged. In Matthew 15, Jesus has already challenged the Jewish religious leaders as setting their tradition, which is clearly said as of human origin there, over against the word of God. Indeed, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall honor your father and mother. And and so, um, um, you know, it's it's like they, they've got a lot of nerve, you know, so to speak, to, to question Jesus' authority when when you know, as as to whether it's you know and and jesus knows they're asking okay are you doing this on your own or is this something that god has authorized you to do and you know if he says god then then they they make him out to be sort of a lunatic and and false a false claimant you know and and if he says you know from well he's just doing it from him from his own authority well obviously that that delegitimizes them in the eyes of the of the people, um, but the reality is that Jesus has has already really kind of challenged them on the same issue. <laughs> right? Yeah. And how cool is that? Yeah. And 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 I love this next part because um, um, 
you hear them talking amongst themselves. Right. It's kind of interesting that, you know, we're allowed to eavesdrop on their <laughs> private conversation or their private argument. They argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd for all regard John as a prophet. And, you know, it, may, it makes me wonder, where, where did they get this? How did this come into the synoptic tradition? How did they know this was the, this was the uh, argument that was going on between the Jewish religious leaders? You know, I, I don't know. But here yeah, Jesus yeah. has turned the question of authority back around, basically, and directed it to their leadership, you know. And, and, and their argument demonstrates, really, their concern is for appearances and for maintaining their power and position rather than for the word of God or righteousness or even the truth. And, and they seem to know that the right answer is from heaven, but then they would have to explain why they did not answer John's call to repentance. And, you know, again, we have this whole thing going on in Matthew about uh, them being called a brood of vipers. And John, they come and they're, they're, they're sort of spectating at John's baptism. And he says, you know, who warned you to flee the coming wrath, you brood of vipers? But they know they can't answer also of human origin, because they know that the crowd considered John a prophet and they were afraid of what the crowd would do if they publicly disavowed him. And so here we see, for the first time, I guess, in the Passion narrative, the important role that the crowd will play in the conflict between Jesus and the temple hierarchy and ultimately in Jesus' condemnation and death. Um, also, the idea that, that they're called the elders of the people, it's the chief priests and the elders of the people, uh, it, it's sort of brings the people in to um, what the Jewish religious leaders are doing. Now, now to be sure, we need to, make, we need to clarify this. We've talked about this before. We need to clarify this. Um, it's the Jewish religious leaders that are the primary opposition to Jesus. And, and when Jesus criticizes them, he's criticizing the religious leaders. He's not criticizing Jewish people as a whole. And, and so, you know, this is, this is the whole issue of anti-Semitism in Matthew. Um, and and, and we, need to, we need to be clear that it's the Jewish religious leaders that are the ones who are, who are, who are opposing him. But, you know, at, at, at salient points in the journey through the Passion narrative, the crowds and the people play a role in influencing the decisions that are made. A couple of things caught me when you said that is, yes, making sure that we're clear between the leadership and the Jewish crowds, right? Mm -hmm. But the other thing that caught me in this discussion is I'm not sure a lot of people understand the difference between the temple hierarchy and in the, mm -hmm. the uh, synagogue, the, the Pharisees. Yeah, most people just lump, lump them all together. Yeah. It, is that, do, do you take some time to, to, to divide that apart for the congregations when you're preaching on this or not so much? Um. I don't, I mean, I think, I don't know, I don't know to what extent that would be important. I mean, clearly, you know, the, the chief priests and the elders of the people, they were the aristocratic class. They were the, they were the landowners. They were the aristocrats. They were the ones who controlled the temple, the temple, you know, um, institution. And, and, the, and, and so they, they kind of ran things from Jerusalem. The Pharisees and the scribes were more a party of the people. They were more, like I said, centered in the synagogue. And 
under normal circumstances, those two groups of people wouldn't really care much for each other because the, the scribes and the Pharisees were focused on the keeping and the doing of the law, whereas the um, chief priests were concerned with maintaining the, 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 the temple cultus and, and the worship at the temple, and, and that is their power base. So they, diff- they had different power bases. And um, um, it was like two, two, two different wings of a political party or something like that, you know, I, I, that, that, may, that may collude with one another when it serves their purposes, but on, on an ordinary day, they wouldn't really, they would all possibly even be enemies and opponents. Thank you. Um, so, moving on, um, um, we were we were we were talking about how they're they're being um, how Jesus kind of traps them. Yeah, well, and I like Alan Culpepper has a commentary on Matthew in the in the New Testament Library series. He says they cannot deny what they will not admit, so they choose instead a judicious but evasive response. I like the way he puts that. And so Matthew tells us, they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Um, You know, they thought they had caught Jesus in a trap, which is a theme that's consistent in this section of Matthew. But by turning the question back on them, they wound up caught in their own trap and exposing not only their um, lack of response to a true prophet in the person both of John and Jesus, but also their duplicity. They're, they're, they're not being straightforward here. Right. <laughs> and so <coughs> how, um, you know, how, how does this conclude? Well, a conflict situation like this in Matthew's gospel would normally conclude with an important saying of Jesus. Um, but this one doesn't have that. In Mark and Luke, for example, the narrative goes straight from Jesus' refusal to answer their question to the parable of the wicked tenant farmers. It goes straight into that. And if you recall the parable of the wicked tenant farmers, at the end of that, you know, the idea is he's telling that parable about the Jewish religious leaders. And so, um, you know, it continues that conflict. But in Matthew, Matthew... Um, he, he inserts this, uh, his own parable of the two sons. Now, he, he may have been aware of a tradition that Jesus told a parable of the two sons. I mean, Luke's gospel has the parable of the prodigal son, which is essentially a parable of two sons. Um, it was a common theme in Jewish parables. Um, and so th- this parable of the two sons that we have uh, in, at, the, at this juncture in our, in our lesson is only found in the first gospel. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. So which of the two did the father, will of his father? And they said the first. That's Matthew 21, 28 through 31. And, and of course, I, I find it interesting because in this situation, the the religious leaders really have no choice but to answer. So they won't answer his original question, but here he, he kind of asks the same question in a different way, and they really have no choice but to answer. Right. It, it's interesting because it really has a, a right answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, it's clear. Yeah. yeah, it's very clear. Interesting. Now, we should simply note that there is a significant textual problem with this passage, Matthew 21, 28 to 31. 
The order of the sons is reversed in Codex Vaticanus, which is represented by the capital B in, in the textual um, apparatus, and other significant manuscripts. Presumably, um, to follow the order that the first said yes but didn't go, while it was the second who initially re- refused and then repented. Now, you know, um, when you look at textual criticism, there's a, there's a lot of things that you, you, you weigh. The motivation here may have been to preserve the parallel with the Jewish religious leaders being the first and the tax collectors and the prostitutes in verse 31 being last, or simply from a salvation historical motivation to follow the order of the Jew first and then the Gentile. Although, I think simple anti-Semitism on the part of some scribes can't be ruled out. The only mainstream translations in the, new, new, in the English Bible tradition that adopt this are the British New English Bible and then the Revised English Bible, which is a revision of that same version. Interesting. Yeah. Um, interesting. I mean, I, I, I'm thinking that the way that the way it is in the, you know, like the New Revised Standard probably makes the most sense. It, although I, I get the, I get the, I get why it might have been shifted. Too. Well, part of the problem, part of the problem is that the two earliest and best manuscripts, which are B or Vaticanus and Aleph or Sinaiticus are split here. <laughs> Sinaiticus represents the reading that we have in most of our English versions. The first son says no and then repents and goes, and the second son says yes and doesn't go. Vaticanus reverses it. And so where you have these two earliest and best um, Greek manuscripts um, diverging so distinctly on this, um, it is, it is I mean, that, that, that may have been what created the confusion. There's even a reading, uh, there's, there's one reading in, in Codex uh, Beza, uh, or D, and some Syriac versions and some Old Latin versions, where um, the, the first one, the first one says no, but then repents, and the second one says yes, but doesn't go, and the reader's answer, I mean, the, the leader's answer, that it was the last son. It was the second son that did his father's will, which makes no sense. <laughs> oh, so th- clearly there's some confusion in yes. this. Right, so moving ahead. Yeah, and so then with a solemn amen formula, Jesus applies the parable of the two sons to the t- religious leaders. Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even after you, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Now, Jesus' point is obvious in that the religious leaders claimed to obey God's will in the Torah, but they ignored John's call to repentance. While the tax collectors and prostitutes, who were among the lowest of sinners in the eyes of the religious leaders, obeyed John's call. Nevertheless, I think it's important to note, as Lutz points out in his commentary, that neither the religious leaders nor the sinners fit the pattern of the two sons precisely, uh, right? Uh, because neither one of them said no initially and then turned back, um, and neither one of them said yes and, and then didn't do anything. It's just, it doesn't, neither one of them fit the, pair, the, 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 the pattern of the two sons precisely. The religious leaders actually did the worst of both. They said no to John's call, and then they didn't repent later. 
That that is not lost on 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 me. At least I don't think other people that read it is like these guys were not even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and the sure. and the sinners obeyed John's call without any notion that they later turned back. Now you could perhaps you know say well maybe maybe Jesus had in mind well the the, the religious leaders you know the, the tax collectors and the sinners by their life had said no to God and then they repented and came back. The, the religious leaders, by their appearance, said yes to God, but they really didn't exactly. do anything. It could be that. But I think, at least, at least in some respects, the, the, the connection isn't clear. So, um, um, so Jesus responds to this. Well, and, and one explanation for this kind of disconnect between um what's going on here in in verse 32 and verse 31 is that jesus statement truly i tell you the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of god ahead of you in verse 31 that may have been the conclusion to jesus original parable but such language i think cried out for explanation and and perhaps matthew supplied that explanation in verse 32 connecting this parable with the previous pericope via john the baptist and, and um, you know, just kind of spelling out more in detail um, the sort of pithy saying that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to the kingdom of God ahead of you. I think, you know, I think it's more characteristic of Jesus to just make a statement like that and leave it. Kind of like the first will be last and the last will be first, right? And so, but, but it seems like perhaps, perhaps, and Matthew is, is, is supplying a bit of explanation in verse 32 with the idea that, that um, uh, John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Now, um. be- believe here means to respond to John's call in such a way that they align their lives with the way of righteousness. And I think what we need to realize, and, and I realize that the reformers might not like this, and, and, you know, in the reformed tradition it might not sound good, but what this passage makes clear to us is that faith is important for Matthew, but that faith also includes repentance and obedience. And so doing the will of God is key for discipleship in Matthew. Actually, the reformers would be right on board with that. Oh, cool! But, but yeah. repentance and obedience, um, those come after. Those come from faith, right? Right. right. So they definitely, well, and, and particularly reformed tradition. Luther tends to be a little bit looser about that because he's so his focus is so much on, on, on you know salvation by faith alone. That he's afraid to even bring up works. But, but Calvin definitely. I mean, yeah. gosh definitely would be on board with that. Well, and I think Paul Paul already kind of sets the tone for that. In Matthew Matthew's a little bit like James in this respect in that in that Matthew for Matthew you can't have faith without repentance and obedience. It all goes together. It's not there's not a one comes first. It all goes together. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think um I think for Calvin, for example, that that that's more of an intellectual argument mm-hmm. than it is um, than it is something that oh you have faith in it and it comes later. I think in his world it's all going to come together mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, you know for me when I was reading this this pericope seemed really disjointed to me. It seems like it had two parts. 
Oh yeah. And, oh yeah. And the parable seemed really, and uh, the parable seemed kind of an. Uh, I mean, why? Why is this parable yeah. here? Well, and I think that's a fair question. Um, you know, and and you know, we don't find this par this particular parable of two sons anywhere else in the gospel tradition. So you know, why does Matthew include this here? I, I think first it may have been po part polemic and part apology in response to the leaders of the synagogue that his community, you know, was in conflict with. We know that the Matthews community was either in the process of being excluded from the synagogue or they had already been excluded from the synagogue. And so perhaps it was polemic against the synagogue leaders and perhaps it was apology for, you know, yeah, we, we really are <laughs> um, uh, maintaining the way of righteousness in our community, even though they accuse us of, of not doing that. Um, the synagogue did not recognize Jesus as Messiah, as, as the Messiah, the son of David, who taught, healed, and forgave sins with the authority of God. And they may have also criticized the leaders of Matthew's Jewish Christian community as well. Uh, I think another possibility is, and, and I think it's equally important, is that it reinforces some of the foundational themes in Matthew's gospel. Jesus and John are linked together in his mind as prophets of God, which is part of the reason why, in my mind, Matthew misreads Jesus' language about the kingdom of God along the lines that John had construed in terms of judgment. But yeah. discipleship yeah. for Matthew involves not only responding to Jesus with faith, but also with repentance and with true obedience to the way of righteousness that he taught. And so these are, these are all important themes in Matthew's gospel, and, they, and, and this, this um, parable reinforces those themes. Yes, yes, it does. Well, excellent. Well, thanks, Alan, and we'll be back. Thanks. Hi friends, we're back and we're going to continue by looking at uh, what uh, the reformers had to say about this passage. And so, uh, Christy, um, tell us what you found. Well, as we noted today, the passage kind of has two parts, right? Mm -hmm. So um, this discussion is part of the rebuke of the, of the leadership, of the, we just talked about the temple leadership. Um, and um, it was also used by reformers to, to define who John the Baptist actually mm. is. And I'm going to focus on that a little bit here. I will say that recognizing John as the one called by God for this purpose is central to the emphasis of the reformers, as John was the one who, was authentic, who authenticated Christ's identity. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah. mm -hmm. First, um, it has this part about the authority of Jesus. Um, questioned which <clears throat> authority of Jesus questioned, which includes some analysis of the identity of both John and Jesus. And second, then, is this parable of the two sons, which I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, one of the concerns of the reformer, reformers is, who is John the Baptist? Is he a prophet or something else? And so Luther asks a few questions in this regard. One of the first questions that Luther asks is, if John is a prophet, then why is there such a long period of time between the last known prophet since the days of Malachi? That's and that's that's uh, that's an interesting. Um, I would say that's an interesting anachronism on Luther's part, Be because because if you read the the intertestamental literature and you find 
Um, and you, and you, I mean, you look at, you look at what was going on in Judaism. There was no, there was no gap in voices speaking for God. The issue is, you know, that, that the, the, none of those voices were recognized as canonical. Right. Which is going to be something that Luther's really going to deal with. Right. So he's, he's getting, so he's like, that's all not important. That doesn't count, and therefore he's going to look at this. And I, you're right. And I thought about that too when I saw Luther's criticism. And yet, you have to understand where where Luther's from, right? Sure, he's, of course. That, you know, remind you, you're you're a guy who's who's becoming a scholar. He's learning some scholarly things. He becomes very, very, very black and white about about God's voice, mm. <laughs> if you will. And what is authentic and what is not sure, authentic. Sure. And then within that context of this idea of, well, if it is authentically from God, then um, we have to, nothing else in there mm-hmm. counts. Mm-hmm. So um, there's like one, he's kind of still that one truth kind of thought. So right. very, very interesting. And John's job, according to Luther, to Luther was ultimately to predict the coming of Christ. So well, and I would I would also have to say, you know, I, I think Luther is um, is is putting the prophets into a pigeonhole that they don't fit. I agree. I agree. What is different here in Luther's mind is that Christ is already present with John. So, in other words, this is the whole purpose of all the prophets. I know. I know. So. John is a little bit different because Christ is already present. So it's a, a slightly different role than a traditional prophet. So John, um, John's role, said Luther, is unique for his job is to point people towards the living Christ. It is a role lower than a prophet, <laughs> but greater than a prophet. <laughs> well, and I would say that the, 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 the role of all the prophets, including John, was to point people to God and to turn people back to God. And, right. and in that respect, John was a prophet just like all the rest of them. Right. And there's pieces here with Luther that, you know, underneath his, his thought. Remember, it, 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 I think part of it for Luther, too, is if he says that the prophets only are functioning within um, the Jewish tradition, that would give the Jewish tradition more credit than one mm. message about Christ. So he's not going to go there. Mm-hmm. He's not going to acknowledge the prophets of having great significance um, unless they are pointing towards Christ, yeah. because that's one truth. Right. And you see this tension in Luther between how he even understands the Jews. And um, a book out by um, Richard Harvey called Luther and the Jews, Putting Right the Lies. And... Um, also, Luther's Jews: A Journey to Anti-Semitism by Tom, Thomas Kaufman, where they, you know, where you kind of are seeing this pattern between Luther kind of dividing him his, himself off and saying there's a Christian truth, and then the Jews are something else. They uh, and so that the prophets only have uh, value to the extent that they point to Christ. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So Unfortunately, kind of, I think there are a lot. There's still a lot of a lot of context today where people believe that. Right, right, yeah. You you are absolutely right. So it's that it's that um, 
anyway, that's his kind of framework, right? So yeah. that's the problem with lifting Luther up to being, you know, kind of his own beyond his age. And, and, and we tend to do that with these reformers. Yep. I mean, oh, that Luther had the right. And no, Luther was a guy of his age. He, right. was a, he was a man of the 16th century. And so we always have to be careful with that. You might um, even say he was a man of the 15th century. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. <laughs> it's Calvin. Calvin's, our... <laughs> Calvin's the man of the 16th century. That's right. And why is this, this, why this is significant for Luther's understanding is that it is an example that we must all take in order to be ready for Christ and that this was a means of humbling oneself. So... It was a spiritual turn, one from the heart. And this is the opposite of what was practiced in the Holy Roman Empire, which was, quote, praying, fasting, self-mortification, and your own works. In other words, John call, John's call is a spiritual preparation, not a physical one. Mm. So this all is right. faith as opposed to works, right? And my favorite part is where Luther says that if the heart is minded, it is still possible to, quote, drink fine wines, walk on roses, and not pray a word. <laughs> Sin boldly, right? <laughs> you got to love Luther. He's so colorful. Yeah. <laughs> so Calvin also comments on John the Baptist and that his pur purpose was to be a herald of Christ. So that's similar. Um, that he was not to have any claim for himself. John provided the testimony of Christ. But we're still getting that that c consistent idea of prophecy, right? Mm -hmm. um, in Calvin and Luther's opinion, it should have been obvious that John was not deceptive and came in truth. And his baptism should be regarded as one of God. There is, quote, no place for human ceremonies that can deceive when it comes to God's business. <laughs> Gee, I wonder who they had in mind when they were framed it that way. <laughs> Yes, here, John is the one called as a prophet, quote, above the prophets. So in other words, John is part of God's providence. So you're seeing Calvin's theology in here. Ultimately, Calvin says, the production of John's testimony sufficiently proves that he is furnished with divine authority. Well, and, so, you know, to be fair, we've seen that Jesus says some pretty exalted things about John in the in the gospel tradition and uh i'm sure that that both luther and calvin are reflecting on that i think so too right um so calvin actually continues his discussion within the context of the institutes as if it could be because the things i talked about before were in the commentaries um is it had to do with the validity of baptism so Calvin wants to emphasize that baptism is a gift from God and therefore should only be performed once. So he's responding to the Anabaptists. Um, he was commenting on a couple of practices in the church that took away the godly significance of baptism. In the ancient church, there was a concern of rebaptizing Arians who did not have a full theology of Christ. But instead of rebaptizing, Calvin upheld a practice of laying on hands which is not sacramental, but began to be used this way in the church. The problem for Calvin is that this was not ordered by God and therefore did not have the validity of a true sacrament. Right, right. So here, had the Pharisees claimed that his baptism was from men, it would not have any validity. If from heaven, it would have forced them to acknowledge John's doctrine. Right. 
Therefore, it is true in the practice of the church that if it is truly from God, which we get through the witness of Scripture, then it has the authority of God. So this, of course, reflects both sovereignty of God, central to Calvin's theology, and centrality of Scripture. Yeah. Um, we take this for granted in our Reformed tradition, but this is absolutely shifting the pattern of piety and authority in the 16th century. Right. Um, I think so, about, you know, I think about, um, there's a passage in Acts 19 where Paul meets some people and he says, you know, have you been baptized by the Spirit? And, and uh, they said, we don't even know there's a Spirit. And have you received baptism? Yes, it was John's baptism. And he baptizes them in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and I, I guess, I guess, I would. I wonder what uh, what Calvin or Luther would make out of that particular situation. I guess they would probably yeah. see it as a special circumstance. I think they would have seen it as a kind of a special circumstance, mm-hmm. probably. Um, and and I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. But I'm I'm curious. Um, um, I'm curious um, of how they respond to that in their commentaries. I haven't looked at it, but I would think a special circumstance, and I don't know that they would have tied it necessarily to this, mm-hmm. because now you, you wouldn't go baptize somebody in the name of John now, mm-hmm. right? Um, right. Um, because it would just be um, in the name of Jesus. Right. So, yeah. Interesting question, though. I'll have to look and see how they respond to that. Well, and I think about even our own tradition. You know, we we recognize all Trinitarian baptisms, but there are certain baptisms that we don't recognize, and they may be nominally, nominally at least, in the name of Jesus, but because of the theology behind them, we don't recognize them in the PCUSA. And um, I think about the Arians <laughs> being rebaptized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting, and you know, I we could talk later about it, about it as well. But you know, I know I have um, because of the the some of the practices in the in the Baptist tradition for believers' baptism. You know, I know there's people that I baptize, and if they end up in a different tradition, they're going to be rebaptized. Yeah. And it's always a little bit. You always have to take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right. So before we head to the second part. I do want to take a second to think about the image of John the Baptist in the Reformation tradition. Um, for the Reformers, the emphasis on John the Baptist was more on his role as the one who pointed to Christ. But in the Roman Catholic tradition, John is really seen as the first martyr, and it's particularly emphasized in the Counter-Reformation. And so there's this really huge outpouring of very realistic Renaissance paintings that center on the severed head of John the Baptist. <laughs> very realistic. I sent one to Alan. They're that's just horrible. bizarre. It's, yeah, it's, it's morbid. Morbid. But it reflects the emphasis on the crucified Christ mm-hmm. that is so prominent in Roman Catholic tradition as opposed to the resurrected Christ. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but if you go in a Roman Catholic church, you're going to see Christ hanging from the cross. You're going to see blood, that emphasis. We're in a, you know, a, a Protestant tradition. You're going to see the empty cross. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Roman Catholics, it's really a call to piety, a reminder about the suffering of those who followed Christ, or in this case, even led Christ, and about the call in their lives to suffer. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, I can appreciate that. 
that <laughs> emphasis. But, you know, I was talking to someone about it once who grew up in the Catholic Church, and she said, you know, as a little girl, I was just scared of that, of that crucifix. I was just scared of it. And I never really thought about it that way, you know, from a, for a child, you know, to see that image. Uh, you know, as an, as an adult, you know, I can appreciate the piety of Jesus as the one who, you know, he, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, right? Um, and that's a comforting reminder. But, um, but a child sees that gruesome image up there and, and isn't going to really put all that together. Oh, I agree. I agree. Well, and, and to accompany it, you can have your, you know, Renaissance style severed head. <laughs> yeah, right. No, thanks. <laughs> the second part of the scripture focuses on the parable of the two sons and the landowner. In general, the parable is a means to, this is all uh, from the reformers, but it's the parable to, as a, is used as a means to further rebuke the Israelite leadership. They recognize that in Matthew's gospel, this parable fits well within the questioning of authority that is before it. If the emphasis above was the humbling in response to John the Baptist, it must, as it must be from the heart, that this is an example of it. Mm. It was the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the most despised and the greatest sinners, who were moved through their faith or through their heart. Mm -hmm. And finally, for Protestant movements, um, who were late to the game, this parable provided a rallying cry, an encouragement that they were not too late, mm. and that by turning to the true faith that they would be welcomed by God. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so, so the Roman Catholics were the, were the ones who, who uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe said yes, but then didn't do the right thing. Exactly. <laughs> so while we, used, we are used to a, a variety of denomination and political traditions here, there was a very real process between right and wrong interpretation. Mm. The era does not really follow the kind of religious pluralism that we have today. So when would-be reformers are convinced that they are right, they are convinced that the Roman Catholic Church of the past was wrong. And so we see this in particular in England and Scotland. Now, I don't want to revisit the entire English question here, but this was a cry of the Calvinists who were, were in Geneva advocating for a reformed Church of England. The religious wars within the British Isles were seemingly one of the most incomplete examples of Reformation, and in part because the framework of Elizabeth I, which would result in the settlement, but not really a full doctrine. And so while we are historically applaud this approach to ending the bloody massacres that were so prevalent under her sister Mary Tudor, it was a solution that was tenuous and frankly fell apart within the next century. So it is interesting that reformers turned to this parable as a parable of hope. Mm. You know, I think about it, I mean, it seems to me that, that the, um, the framework of Elizabeth was one that basically allowed for tolerance and, and essentially for religious pluralism. And, and you know, um, even in our context today, uh, uh, you know, Certainly, I am a I am a strong supporter of the Bill of Rights and and the freedom to worship God according to one's own conscience, whatever religion that looks like. But I think we're seeing in this country part of the part of what's going on is that you know that that religious pluralism isn't satisfactory to a lot of people, and we still have this we still have this longing, I think, for uh, a distinction between the right and the wrong interpretation. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, um, it, it causes, it will always cause tension. I think it's because if, if there's, well, we could talk about it later, but there's a, if, if people have an idea of this is the truth, then they become in a box because mm -hmm. they're like, everyone has to be on page with the truth. And if you're not, then you're, then you're, then you're wrong. Exactly. Yeah. But if it's, well, if there's different truths than my truth, and so then there's no truth, and, and, and it becomes, right. it becomes, it, it's, it's a tension, definitely. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we thought we would um, follow up on that whole discussion that we ended uh, the last segment with on the issue of the right versus the wrong interpretation. And it seems like this seem this may be at the heart of of what was going on between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, as well as, of course, in the days of the Reformation, and we see it still today. So, Christy, what are your thoughts about that? I think, I think there's an idea that um, here's God, God has given scripture, and if, if, if we are truly, if we are, if we're truly in tune with what God's doing, that there's this truth that we can understand, and, and Luther was really onto this idea, right, he's, especially when he, he started, he's like, oh, wait, the Roman Catholic Church has, has put a bar in a way of for truly understanding scripture, and if only we can understand scripture, rightly, we will ha come at the truth. And of course, so then his programs of education to have everyone be able to read scripture for themselves and understand it. And then Luther becomes really um, convinced that if people could just read scripture for themselves, through the Holy Spirit will bring them to this one truth. And then of course, that didn't happen. And so he then he scrambles and he's like, oh, well, we need to guide people to the truth. And so that's where the catechism starts right. coming in. Right. So you could see this all go in the, within the context of, of, Luther's, um, of Luther's reform. And, you know, I think we still are on that page today. Many people, they, they, you know, there's one truth and they'll come at me with, you know, the King James Bible. This is the only true translation. Well, you know, look today. We already see between our two major... <laughs> sources, Greek sources, that there's they don't agree. Right, so say, right. You know, this is the one truth, and I have that happen quite a bit. Um, so it's interesting to to talk with different Christians who I don't know who someone else I guess decides that they're going to interpret the truth for somebody else. And um, well, I think people let someone else decide that, you know. And it's a little bit along the lines of the catechisms. I mean, it's like Luther with his process. Well, if we just translate the Bible, people will see the truth for themselves, and they didn't. So then we have to add the catechism so they'll see the truth as we understand it for themselves. Right. And I, I think that's the key phrase is we all see the truth as we understand it. Right. And right. if we can only get to that place, this is the truth as I understand it. Then maybe we can get out of that. Well, my truth is right and your truth is wrong. You know, my have the big T cap, capital big T truth right. and your your truth is well, that may be your truth, but it's not right. <laughs> it is not right. But so but it's that interesting balance, right? Because then is there a you know, we're talking about big T truth. Is there a big T truth or is there not a big T truth? And of course, um, 
it becomes it becomes a problem in the church because well if god is the big t truth then um and if god sent scriptures to us then of course scripture is infallible and, and and inerrant and it comes down to us as that big t truth which we've already talked about it doesn't even make sense yeah um within the context of scripture because there's the you know even within even within a passage like with matthew places that contradict Mm-hmm. Right, right within the context of Matthew himself. Well, and you know, I taught, as you know, I taught in a Southern Baptist context for um, some time, and I taught hermeneutics. I taught Bible and biblical interpretation, and you know, um, one of the slogans that that I heard a lot oh. in that context: "God said it, I believe it; that settles it." Well, in, in any kind of in any kind of um, logical syllogism like that, the operative premise is not the first statement, but the second statement. And so, what you're really saying is, "I believe it." That settles it. <laughs> and, and it comes back to that. You know, most people aren't able to articulate this. This is the truth as I understand it. So this must be right. But if they could just get to the place where they would realize, well, this is the truth as I am able to understand it. Maybe there might be some opening for realizing I don't have all the truth. The only one who has the big T truth is God himself. And we're all trying to trying to figure it out and trying to discern the truth. And, you know, I think we can have confidence in our convictions you know, I have confidence in my in my Christian convictions. I have confidence in my Reformed principles. Um, but there's the difference between saying I have confidence in my convictions and confidence in my principles and saying that my interpretation is right and yours is wrong. <laughs> Extreme as well. It's like, well, okay, but if there's no one big T truth, then there must not be any truth at right, all. Right, right. And therefore, I need to create it for myself, right? right? I mean, you could go to the whole other extreme. And, and that's um, not healthy either. That's not healthy either, right? Yeah, yeah. So where is this where is this balance? And to me part of the that truth is that grappling that we're mm-hmm. encouraged to Surely, do absolutely. Me. Absolutely. Um, and um, Well, it's um, the, it's the it's the image of wrestling with scripture. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I'm in a I'm in a I'm in a congregation now that I've got really the opposite spectrum, the whole spectrum in my church from mm-hmm. we're not sure if there's any truth at all to, to the Bible is, you know, as, as it's been interpreted for me in my past is exactly how it's read. Mm-hmm. So it's really a challenge to kind of bring those two groups together yeah. um, to, to find out where do we agree? You know, so we're, we're really, I'm, I'm, I'm really coming from God is love. So we're starting from mm-hmm. that premise. That's mm-hmm. where we're starting. Kind That's of a good premise. Moltmann. Yay. That's a good premise. <laughs> yeah. My buddy. Yeah. And, and starting there, because that seems to be a place where we can all come together and, mm-hmm. and, and, and um, as a starting place for our ministry as a church. But well, And um, I, I mean, again, going back to the scripture passage, that was essentially the debate between Jesus and the religious authorities, you know. Um, who's right and who's wrong here? And you know the, the 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 temple hierarchy, especially they they were not only personally invested, but their whole faith structure was built around clean and unclean, who's in and who's out, 
you know, where you draw the lines, who gets to approach God and who doesn't get to approach God. That was the, that was the temple cultus, you know. It was all about drawing those lines and keeping out that which is not holy. And, and so for, for them, Jesus and his whole approach that, that just kind of crossed over all those lines was, was not only offensive, it was blasphemous. And, right. and, and yet, I mean, you know, when, when, I mean, when you read Jesus in light of the prophets of the Old Testament, you know, first of all, I think you see a lot of resonance with, between their message and his message. But secondly, I think then you recognize why they were so hounded and persecuted and even killed by the authorities because they too threatened the, the established structure that was around this whole idea of who's in and who's out, who do we exclude, where do we draw the lines, you know, who gets to approach God and who doesn't. Question for you. So at the destruction of the temple, or with that, would that temple class have said, have argued something to the idea of, well, the temple was destroyed because the true worship of God was somehow um, hurt or obstructed? Well, we, we, we don't know because basically they disappeared after the destruction yeah. of the temple. They, they no longer had a, a power base, and so they disappeared. So it was the rabbis who were sort of the, the spiritual descendants of the scribes and the Pharisees, who then became the leading voices in Judaism. And it was all about the law, and it was always all about interpreting the Torah. And, and so the, the, the temple cultists and the whole issue of, of temple issues became kind of moot. Now, now, you know, obviously, clean and unclean didn't become irrelevant because we still have kosher food laws today, right? But... Um, um, just the the, the, the the temple hierarchy so reinforced that structure that that you know and that gave the, the chief priests their power base that gave the Sadducees their power base and after they lost that uh, we, we don't hear from them again yeah yeah that's it. that's one of those things that oh only had the right archaeological dig <laughs> <laughs> well i you know again i'm not sure I, again i'm with without a power base i think they just kind of dropped out of the scene also they were right. the they were the aristocratic landowners and after after the jewish war you know the, the they didn't have land anymore either so they they kind of didn't have they didn't have a they didn't have a platform i don't wonder how many of them are actually killed i mean i yeah. bet a lot of those people didn't even survive right right yes right. but you know we'll never right. we'll never really know because it was such a bloodbath yeah but, sure. Um, sure yeah yeah very interesting so well, i mean the, the, this this whole question really comes down to this 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 issue of by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority i i think i've told the story before that you know in my in my church in houston i had a a, um, a woman who was um uh, an elder and her husband had converted to Catholicism. And, <laughs> um, you know, um, I said a lot of things that apparently in his mind, he felt like I would be a great convert to Catholicism myself, which was not true. Um, I do have an appreciation for a lot of things in the Catholic tradition, as I've said before. But um, he also really was struck. He he was pushed by some of the things I said that didn't go along with him because he he was in this. There's a right and a wrong way. There's a right way and a wrong way mindset, 
And, um, you know, uh, I tried to respect his convictions, but um, ultimately he, he couldn't respect mine. And I think that's the problem is, is that when, when people have this idea that, well, you know, I'm on God's side and I have the big T truth from God because, you know, this is what, this is what the Bible says plainly. They don't say, in my interpretation, this is what the Bible says plainly. They just say, this is what the Bible says plainly. They can't distinguish between their reading of the Bible and what the Bible says. And, and so, you know, they, are, they have the authority of God behind them by definition. And if you disagree with them, them you don't by definition. Exactly. And that's well, still an issue today. Well, it absolutely is. And you tend to see it most in these people that either are pulling sound bites out of it mm -hmm. and are reading these words very literally without any con without any context. Mm -hmm. We tend to see it there. Um, you also tend to see it within a tradition with within a tradition that has an hierarchy that has interprets for you within right. the construct of that hierarchy. Right. Right. And so what you do is you get places that either you know don't recognize don't recognize like my baptism or mm -hmm. they don't allow me to take communion because mm -hmm. I don't have, right? I'm not part of that group. Or I don't, I don't, I don't ascribe to their belief system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's where the problems come in. I, I, I want to, I had a really interesting um, wedding I'm doing. Um, and the young people came and they grew up in the Christian tradition but the, I was, as we were going through the ceremony, I found it really interesting. And the, the young man says, well, my parents are, are Protestant, but they've started to adopt a bunch of Jewish traditions. And I, <laughs> I thought it was really interesting how yeah. they're just kind of creating their own. Well, I mean, that's what happens when, when truth becomes relative. You, you, yeah. you become syncretistic yeah. and you just pull from everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So because you, you pick and choose what you like, I don't know. But right. That's another era of this that's kind of interesting. Well, and and the uh, the the follow up to the story with this young man who had converted to Catholicism was he he basically argued that I was picking and choosing the verses that I wanted to to use as my as the basis for my for my convictions, and to some extent, um, that's true. Um, all hermeneutics is, by definition, selective. We always have to have a framework within which we understand the bigger whole. So everybody has a framework within which they understand the Bible. And, and absolutely, absolutely. Luther and Calvin have frameworks. The Roman Catholic tradition has a framework, right? But, you know, the and he could never hear he I freely admit that you know yes I have a framework within which I read the Bible and it is selective but I would like to say that my framework within which I read the Bible has been um, shaped by decades of reading the Bible over and over again and so I have tried to let the Bible with the high points within the scripture itself shape that framework and I would like to say, I would like to say, you know, one of the reasons why I'm a Presbyterian is because I believe that the Reformed tradition has done something similar. You know, the high points in the Reformed tradition I see are consistent with the high points of Scripture as I understand it. Uh, so, so that's part of the problem is that, yeah, we're all selective in our reading of the Bible. We're all selective in our understanding of the truth. But the question is, how consistent is your 
is your framework and how how coherent is it and how 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 much does it line up with with the priorities in scripture i think that's very well said i'm very very well said Um, and i think that the argument between jesus and the chief priest was you know it's not about who 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 you exclude from god it's about how you bring people to God and how, how, right. how people can experience uh, the love of God, how people can experience the kingdom of God, how people can experience um, um, the, 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 the righteousness of God that, that is setting out to make things right for them. Yeah. And, and so we, uh, I guess, is if, if you're listening to us, um, you're probably somewhere on the same page of um, asking these questions and, uh, Seeking, um, seeking to provide this kind of um, openness um, and this kind of encouragement of finding, helping your own congregations. Yes, find indeed. Their, find their... Thanks. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.